Why, hello there. Gideon here, and you know, I'm beginning to think you all are following me around. That's okay, though. I wouldn't want to be the only one who was looking for the truth about Jesus. Today, I'm headed to the temple in Jerusalem because that's where a prophetess named Anna lives. Now, Luke told me she lives in the temple and worships day and night. Imagine what happened when the baby Jesus came through the doors and she got to meet him. I can't wait to hear her story. Come on with me and we'll hear it together. Good morning, Berean. Man, it is an honor to be back with you, and I love your church. I love you guys. I love your pastoral staff. You guys have an incredible pastoral team here, and I just want to say, yeah, give it up for them. Give it up for them. This has been such a challenging season for all of us, but especially pastors. And if you haven't taken the time to just write an encouraging note to them, uh, take some time to do that this week. Seriously. Like, just grab, uh, get on Facebook Messenger. Your pastors use that all the time. If you didn't know that, I guess I just blew their cover. But um, Facebook Messenger, email, send them a text. Like, just let them know. See them in person and just say thank you. Thank you for serving as our pastors here at Berean. So, uh, my name's Dan, and uh, you heard from my best friend Tim a couple weeks ago uh, down from Wilkesbury. Uh, we spent the last 10 years working together in ministry to uh, plant a church called Restored Church, and then God called me and my family up here to Cortland. So, we are learning all about central New York, and man, what a, what a crazy season of life the last two years has been, isn't it? Uh, so, how many of you are Star Wars fans? Do we have any Star Wars fans? Oh, a few. Okay. You know, that's always a dangerous question to ask, right? Because there's some people that are like on Wikipedia all the time, right? And they know everything. And then there's other people who are like, who is that Darth Hader guy? You know, like you just never know. Uh, but there's a scene in, I think it's the very first one. I'm, I'm obviously not a huge Star Wars fan, but it's that scene where uh, Luke and Leia and Chewbacca and Han Solo, they're in this trash compactor. Do you remember that scene? They get stuck in this trash compactor, and it just keeps coming, right? Like, no matter what they do, the trash compactor just keeps coming in on them, coming in on them, and before you know it, they think they're going to get sandwiched, and then finally it stops, but for a long time, it just feels like it's never going to stop. And I don't know about you, but I feel like, just like them, over the last two years, that's exactly how I've felt, right? You just wake up in the morning, and you're just like, man is this ever going to end? <laughs> you just wake up in the morning, you go, it's just bad news after bad news after bad news. And sometimes when we're in tough situations like that, it causes us to uh, say some bad words sometimes. You know, I've, I've got a public service announcement for you for your holiday season. Four-letter words can really make people mad, okay? If you didn't know that, they can, especially with your six-year-old son, Okay. Your six-year-old son will get really torqued if you use a very specific four-letter word that I actually use almost daily, and it's the word wait. W-A, some of you are breathing a huge sigh of relief right now. It's the word wait, W-A-I-T. And you know, 
I'm pretty sure my six-year-old son, Landon, is not the only person who hates that word. We all do, right? You hate going to the DMV because you know you're going to have to wait. You look for the shortest line in the grocery store because you don't want to. Yeah. Are any of you Michigan Wolverine fans? Any Michigan Wolverine fans? None. Oh, good. I can talk all I want now. So I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. I'm an Ohio State Buckeye fan. And, you know, the excruciating... Oh, yeah. Yeah. What, who do you guys cheer for? Syracuse, right? Is that, that who you go for? No. Wow. Okay. I'm getting myself into some really hot water this morning. Well, the deal with being a Michigan Wolverine fan, it's really excruciating because they had to wait a decade to get a win against the Ohio State University Buckeyes, right? I mean, we all know this. We all know this. No, the truth is we, we hate to wait. Honestly, we hate to wait 84 seconds, but we're going to look at a story from God's Word this morning about an incredible woman of faith named Anna who waited 84 years to be a first responder to Jesus. So if you could turn in your Bible or turn your Bible on to Luke chapter 2, we are going to look at three short verses that are incredibly powerful. Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 36. Go ahead and turn in your Bible there or turn your Bible on. And uh, the page number is 822. Page 822. You can turn there with me. We're going to look at these three short verses. Let me read it and then I'll pray. Anna, a prophet, was also there in the temple. She was the daughter of Phanuel from the tribe of Asher, and she was very old. Her husband died when they had been married only seven years. And then she lived as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, but stayed there day and night, worshiping God with fasting and prayer. And she came along just as Simeon was talking with Mary and Joseph, and she began praising God. She talked about the child to everyone who had been waiting expectantly for God to rescue Jerusalem. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the gift of yourself and the gift of your word God, this morning, I pray that you would once again meet us right where we are. God, I, I have no idea where we're all coming from, all the struggles and challenges that we're facing, whether we're here in the room uh, live or watching online. But God, you know all of our stories, all of our hearts. You made us, you created us, you love us, and you have sent your son to rescue us, and you've given us your word to learn from. I pray that we would receive it fully this morning, whatever it is you have for us, in Jesus' name, amen. So imagine with me, if you got just three short verses to describe your bio, can you imagine that? What if your life story was summarized in three short Bible verses? What would those Bible verses say? So that's exactly what we've got in front of us. We have Three verses that describe Anna's entire life, and that's all we get. Now, obviously, they can't do it fully, but this is all we have. And I'm going to summarize her story this way. So if you forget everything else this morning, okay, we're going to talk for about half an hour here, but if you forget everything else, don't forget this. Maturity means suffering doesn't get the final say. Maturity means suffering doesn't get the final say. Can you say that with me? Maturity means suffering doesn't get the final say. And this is Anna's story. So let's dive in. Let's unpack a little bit of the background before we dive into the text. So 
Jesus is a newborn here, and his parents, Mary and Joseph, are taking him to the temple to dedicate him to God. And Dr. Luke, who wrote this letter, he's writing this as an account of the life and ministry of Jesus, and he's using two eyewitness accounts, Simeon and Anna, for a very specific reason. You know, sometimes we read the Bible and we have these lenses, these uh, modern American 2021 lenses, okay? But we've got to kind of take these off and see what was going on in the, in the background, the, the context and the culture at which this was written. So the reason Dr. Luke is writing down two eyewitnesses is that in ancient courts, you had to have two eyewitnesses at least to verify that something was true. And Dr. Luke is trying to tell not only the original audience, but us here today in 2021, he's saying, this is real history. This actually happened. This isn't myth. This isn't legend. This isn't a fable. And at the very start of his account, uh, if you flip over to Luke chapter 1, just in the first few verses, he says, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who, catch this, From the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. So what is Dr. Luke emphasizing here? He's saying, this is real, and I can prove that this is real. You know, uh, we live in a society today that, so America is not just post-Christian, all right? There's a lot of talk about America being a post-Christian nation. We're actually beyond that now. We're not just a post-Christian nation. We are rapidly becoming an anti-Christian nation. And we can tell that because the narrative about the Bible has changed. Back in the day, even just a couple decades ago, even a decade ago, this, the, the narrative about Scripture was that the Bible is irrelevant, Okay? That's what people used to say. The Bible's irrelevant. And then we just demonstrated that it's always been relevant, and boom, God did amazing things. New day and age today. Now the narrative is that the Bible is evil. Two completely different narratives about Scripture. And so when we are talking about the Bible, I think it's important to talk through the fact that this is truth, that this is actually God's Word. This is inspired. This is authoritative. This isn't just myth, legend, and fable. And Dr. Luke is proving this. Now, you may look back at me and say, Dan, I I don't agree with that. Or or maybe you're wrestling with that. Maybe you're going through this process that many have labeled deconstruction. Okay? And, And if you haven't heard that term, let me talk about it just very briefly. Deconstruction, in some ways, can be a very helpful process because for some people, they're wrestling with how they express their faith. Or they're wrestling with some of the weaknesses and some of the shortcomings of the established church. And that that can be good. But then there's others who are running after some very intense lies from our enemy, and this is a very real struggle that I have faced myself. And it's the same four words that our enemy Satan has said since the very beginning. Way back in Genesis, Satan used four words. Did God really say? Did God really say? And that led our, parent, our first parents into rebellion, and it's continue, he continues to come after us with those four words of doubt and, and questioning, is God's word actually God's word? And, you know, if you're in the middle of that process and you're wrestling with this, I want to share with you why I trust the Bible. Because I think this is something that we just can't assume today. We need to discuss why, we need to know why we believe what we believe. And I would challenge you, if you believe the Bible is true, if you believe it's actually God's word, why? I'll tell you why I do. 
because it's a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. They report to us supernatural events in fulfillment of specific prophecies and claim that their origins are divine rather than human in origin. Now, that is not original to me. That comes from a really awesome teacher named Vodi Bakum, but I agree with him. I think there are a lot of reasons to believe that this is actually from God. It's inspired, and it isn't just myth, legend, or fable. It is actual history. So, with all of that said, let's look at more of what Dr. Luke is doing in, in the background here. Dr. Luke is exclusively highlighting, from chapter 1 through chapter 2 especially, uh, examples of people with societal flaws in this ancient Middle Eastern culture, okay? Um, first of all, a childless couple, okay? Zechariah and Elizabeth, they're childless originally, and he highlights their story. Then an impoverished couple from Nazareth, Mary and Joseph. Then shepherds who in that context, in that culture, were not in high society. We'll just put it that way. And then a widow here, and her name is Anna. Now why? Why is Dr. Luke highlighting these particular stories? Because he had so many things to choose from. Why these folks? Well, he's highlighting the fact that Jesus is good news. You know, there's a lot of people at your job, in your neighborhood, in your family, and in our society today that don't believe Jesus is actually good news. He is, though. He is good news, especially to the down and out. Because God's heart, listen, uh, a very famous author named A.W. Tozer said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And so it's important that when we come into a place like this, we go, who is God really? Well, his heart is drawn to the, the misfits, the cast-offs, the beaten down, the brokenhearted, and his heart is especially drawn to those who suffer like Anna. So if you're here today and you're looking back at me like, Dan, I, I feel like we're in that trash compactor. I feel like I'm going through some stuff. Well, guess what? God's heart is drawn toward you, not from you. You need to know that. God's heart is drawn toward you, not away from you. And we know that because God's word is true, and we know that because of Anna's story. So who was Anna? Well, I'm so glad you asked. You guys asked the best questions here in green. Nice work. All right. So Anna was a spiritual leader who could actually foretell the future. Uh, her role as a prophetess meant that God had specifically and specially revealed to her future events that hadn't happened yet. And in an ancient Jewish culture, being a female spiritual leader was challenging because especially in that day and age, women were devalued and oppressed in major ways. And Anna was no stranger to suffering, especially because she was a widow in ancient times. And being a widow in ancient times was very challenging. Now, her husband, if you look at the text on verse 36, you'll see her husband died seven years into their marriage. Can you imagine how hard that must have been? Some of you can. Some of you have gone through the loss of a spouse, whether you're here in the room or if you're watching online. Some of you know the pain of that. I mean, all the hopes and dreams, all the expectations, all of the love, and just, he's gone. You know, uh, we moved up uh, to Cortland about six months ago, and our staff is an amazing team. Uh, I just, I can't say enough incredible things about the church up there, but one of our staff members, her name is Lorraine Newman, and um, 
I learned, as I came on staff, I learned more of her story and that she has uh, lost her husband uh, fairly recently. So as I was preparing for this message, I was like, you know, Lorraine, could we just sit down and could I learn a little bit more from your experience? And she graciously let me uh, hear more about all that she's gone through. So Lorraine uh, was married to her high school sweetheart, Will, for 27 years. So she had two decades more of marriage than Anna did with her husband, but Will had a stroke after 27 years of marriage, and then he actually passed away uh, the year of their 30th anniversary. It was actually the day after their daughter's birthday. And her husband, Will, was her best friend. He was the one that, she, she said, he was the one person that I felt that I could really count on. And when he died, it really put her into a tailspin, and her support system was gone, and she was struggling with, how am I going to cope? How am I going to move forward? And here's what she told me. She said, I have no idea how Anna did it. <laughs> the hardest part of widowhood from Lorraine, she said, it's, it's feeling alone, and it's also a new identity shift. And you know, those are two of the hardest things that we can wrestle with in this life, aren't they? I mean, seriously, think about all the isolation that we have faced over the last two years. And maybe it's not the same as Anna and Lorraine in terms of widowhood, but like we felt very isolated and very alone, and that is incredibly challenging. Another struggle is a new identity shift from new normals that really freak us out. Anyone going through something like that? <laughs> Some new normals that really you're not quite sure how to face? Did you know that the Greek word... So by the way, this letter was not written originally in... English, it was written in Greek. And the Greek word for widow means forsaken, desolate, or left empty. And in ancient times, a widow would often return to her family, but the fact that Anna is living at the temple, it meant that she probably had no family to return home to. She was alone, like alone, alone. And Lorraine struggled with this too, and she said, Man, even after Will passed, it was so hard for her just to even connect with other married couples. It was very, very challenging. But the good news is, between Will's stroke and death, Lorraine told me that those were three years where she clung to Christ more than she had ever done in her entire life. And she held on to hope and faith in Jesus more than ever before. And the growth and the maturity that she saw in her own heart and life has just blown her mind, and it continues to, to this day. But as she was thinking of Anna's story, Lorraine was like, look, Dan, um, in that ancient culture, she's like, because of the lack of resources, I think what Anna was facing was way harder than what I faced. And, and I know both Anna and Lorraine's stories are, are both similar and different, right? I mean, it, it's not apples to apples, and no suffering ever is, quite frankly, but the one thing that I've found in common between both of these incredible ladies, they had one thing. This is, this is so powerful. Think about this. They chose to let suffering make them better, not bitter. They chose to let suffering make them better and not bitter. Now, some of you are looking back at me and you're like, well, that's nice, preacher boy. Like you're up there on your stage doing your little sermon thing. It's a cute little phrase, but... We live in the real world, Dan. What, is, uh, what does it really look like? I mean, seriously, like, how did they truly refuse to let bitterness seep in? Because for some of us, 
Like you may be looking back and you're like, Dan, I'm, I am knee deep in bitterness, maybe even neck deep. And you know, I've been there too. Honestly, even this week. So this is the, the third time I've preached this message on the rotation. Man, this past week I got hit with some stuff. And man, it's so hard, especially as a pastor, <laughs> when you get up on stages like this and you communicate God's word and you, you struggle to follow through and actually live what you're preaching. It's hard. It's hard to let bitterness uh, take, the, take a back seat. It's hard to refuse to let suffering make us bitter and not better. How do we get better instead of bitter? I'm glad you asked. That is an excellent question. Look at verse 37. Luke 2, 37, look at it with me. Anna did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. So how did Anna do it? She ran to God rather than from God. She ran to him, not from him. How'd she do that? First of all, worship. What is worship? Worship, sometimes, especially in church circles, we have these $10,000 Christian words that we really don't know what they mean. Worship is giving worth, value, and priority to someone or something. And every human on this planet is a worshiper. We all give worth, value, and priority to someone or something. The question is, who and what? Anna said it's going to be God. She fasted. What is fasting? It's intentionally denying ourselves things, and it can be even very good things so that we can focus on God. And then she prayed. What's prayer? Prayer is simply constant communication with our Creator. And then, this is a big one. Notice, she did not depart from the temple. Some of you are like, oh no, preacher's going to talk about church. You're darn right I'm going to talk about church. And it's not just about coming in here and listening into a building like this or watching on the live stream and, and listening to a sermon. I mean, listening to sermons are, are good, and that can really help us stay spiritually healthy. Guys, church is so much more than that. Church is a community that we engage, not an event we attend. And in the middle of our suffering, I see this with so many of my friends. I see this in my own heart. I see this. I want to isolate. I want to unplug from real, transparent relationships with other followers of Jesus. Even this week, gang, I had to get on the phone. I had to talk with some friends and I had to, so some people in my life who know me well and I just had to confess and say, like, I'm having a hard time living out the very stuff that I'm preaching. And I gotta tell you, it is unbelievably powerful to see God use that when we refuse to unplug from community, when we, when we engage in the messiness and the awkwardness. And yeah, are relationships hard? Yes. Is being the church hard? Yeah, way harder than doing church. Doing church is easy. Being the church is hard. But notice, Anna refused to unplug from community. And I'm sure that that temple life wasn't all, you know, a, it wasn't a utopia all the time. It wasn't like they just went around skipping around and singing, you know, I don't know what song. <laughs> They, she decided to make God the priority in her life, to deny herself even good things so she could focus on God, to constantly communicate with her creator, and to continue to have real, vibrant, transparent relationships with people at the temple. And I'm telling you, some of us in this room, some of us watching online, we need to hear that. Because the enemy not only is saying, did God really say, he's saying, unplug from community. Just fill your life with distractions and, 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 and run to everything other than God. Make something else 
Give something else worth value and priority over God. Like we're constantly tempted with this. But Anna's story is really inspiring to me. And at the temple, she also would have heard verses like this. So I want to give you some some really key verses that she would have heard from the Old Testament, the first half of the Bible. Deuteronomy 29, 29, mark this down. If you have not studied this verse, this is powerful stuff. Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and our children forever. The secret things belong to God. God's word actually tells us there are things that we will never know. There are things that only God will know. And I'm sure in the middle of losing her husband, she was doing exactly what I was doing when I was in the middle of a children's hospital. My son was going through his open heart surgeries. And I'm going, why? Why? And I'm sure you've been doing that through this season. Over the last two years, haven't we been looking up in God and we're going, why? Why have I lost my friend? Either relationally because we're disagreeing on stuff or I've physically lost someone because of illness and death. God, why is there so much political chaos and I can't make any sense of it? God, why are you letting this COVID craziness to just keep going? We ask those types of questions. And Anna, I'm sure as she heard this verse, she said, the secret things belong to God. I may not get all the answers to my why questions, but I have a concrete who. And it's you, God and the promise of your son Jesus that I'm expectantly waiting for. Genesis 18.25, the faith of Father Abraham, who looked at God and said, will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? That's who our God is. He is the judge of all the earth, and he will do what is right, even when what he's allowing doesn't make any sense. Psalm 62, one through two, truly my soul finds rest in God. My salvation comes from him. Truly he is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will never be shaken. Lorraine told me when we read this at a staff prayer time, she said, those are my two bedrock verses that have gotten me through the loss of my husband. Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. See, Anna determined when she couldn't trace God's hand, she was going to trust his heart. She decided that fear would not make her decisions for her. And you know, even this week, that's what I was talking and processing with some some friends and some mentors and just just recognizing areas of my heart and life, uh, big areas, where I let fear make decisions for me. Anna understood that life is 10% of what happens to us, and it is 90% of how we respond. Anna turned her what-if questions into even-if commitments. She knew that comfort and convenience rarely develop character, and she learned that suffering is never pointless. She chased maturity by not letting suffering have the final say, because she ran to God, not from God. And she learned what life is really all about. And you're like, Okay, Dan, what do you think life is all about? I think God's word teaches that we were created to let the glory of God shine through our life. We are here, our purpose, because each of your life matters. Your life matters, my life matters, and we see this in scripture, right? Why do our lives matter? They matter because we are put here to let the glory of God shine through our lives. And when Lorraine and I were finishing our conversation, this was staggering to me. She said, Life's not about us. It's about God through us. (laughs) Lorraine said that. 
After all that she's gone through, I've never experienced that before. And I just sat back, I'm like, wow. I'm going to read a quote here by Paul David Tripp. And if you're familiar with Paul David Tripp, he's a really awesome teacher, pastor, author, writer, all this. I'm going to read this quote, and it is, it's the deep end of the pool, okay? So we're not, we're not in the shallow end, not that there necessarily is that, but I'm just saying that this, is, this is good stuff, but it's heavy stuff, okay? If everything in life was for us and in our power, we would certainly make sure that we never suffer. A crisis of faith, which is often accompanied by suffering, arises because our will comes into confrontation with God's will, and our glory comes into confrontation with God's glory. And in our self-love that we all struggle with, we are not able to see anything good in suffering, and therefore we begin to doubt whether God is good who allowed us to suffer. And if you think everything revolves around you, the troubles become even harder. You know, the most mature people that I meet in life tend to be the humblest people. <laughs> Not even sure if that's a word. The most humble people. But age doesn't equal maturity, folks. It doesn't. And that's because so few of us, myself included, we, we struggle with this process to let suffering make us better and not bitter. And this process of maturity, the big $10,000 Christian word for it is called sanctification. We don't use that a lot, but that's, that's this process of becoming more like Jesus. That maturing process is what God wants for each and every one of us. And so we've got to lean in on this principle. Maturity means suffering doesn't get the final say. Say that with me. Maturity means suffering doesn't get the final say. So how else do we know that Anna got better and not bitter? Glad you asked. Look at verse 38. Coming up at that very hour, she, Anna, began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. That's incredible. I mean, think about it. After all that she's gone through, what's her response? She gives thanks to God and she goes and she tells everyone that she can about who Jesus is. Because as you know here all too well, Jesus is too great to keep to ourselves, right? See, Anna got her eyes off of her circumstances and onto her Savior, Jesus Christ, who she could see right in front of her. And someday we will too. Someday we will too. If we bow our knee, if we submit to this reality that we're not the kings or the queens of our own life, that we have a creator, we have a savior. His name is Jesus. He came, not, and, and here's the thing. He didn't stay as this tiny baby. <laughs> he submitted himself to the worst pain, the worst suffering, not only emotional, relational, and physical, but spiritual suffering as he, for the first time in all of eternity, was separated from his own father because he took your rebellion and my rebellion on himself, paying the penalty for that rebellion in our place, and then walking out of that tomb three days later, and he turned that grave into a garden because he loves us that much. That is good news. It's good news for me. It's good news for you. It's good news for Northeast America, and it is good news for this entire world. My friend Steve Wilson, maybe some of you know him. I've been quoting him all over the Northeast the past couple weeks. Says, tragedy moves the heart of God 
It's why he sent Jesus in the first place. In response to the invasion of tragedy and suffering, Jesus is the counter-invasion. That'll preach. Thank you, Steve. So if you're here and you're watching online, either, either way, whether you're watching this through the screen or here in the room, I just want you to know, if you don't have a personal relationship with God, I care about you enough to tell you the truth. And you know, we live in a day and age where Society keeps lying to us and saying that if we tell each other hard things that we hate each other, nothing could be further from the truth. Actually, people that tell us what we don't want to hear, typically, a lot of times, they actually love us. If you're here and you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus yet, you haven't bowed the knee to Jesus, suffering will continue to have the final say in your life. It will. But most of us have already crossed the line of faith And if you have, here's the hope of the believer, and here's why I want to invite you, if you haven't crossed the line of faith, to accept Jesus. It means that suffering doesn't get the final say because Jesus suffered with us and for us, and he offers to be our salvation, our fortress, and our rock forever through faith. And in these crazy COVID times, people are looking for hope in all the wrong places, I don't want that for you. I don't want that for, for me. I don't want that for Northeast America. I mean, our whole nation is looking for hope. Where are we going to find it? We're going to find it in Jesus because he is the one rock where we can construct, which by the way, again, if you're, if you're wrestling with deconstruction, the one question I have for you is, what are you going to construct? What are you going to reconstruct after the deconstruction? Because tearing down Sometimes that needs to happen, and sometimes that can be a good thing. But building up, it's hard. What are you going to build on? Well, I would say we should build on this rock who is Jesus. Now, unfortunately, because I have COVID brain, uh, just meaning the last two years my brain is just fried, I completely forgot my prop. So if you can imagine with me (laughs) a very special rock that is now sitting at 34 Morningside in Coraline, New York. If if, if I had this with you, I'd love to show you this rock. Uh, I'll bring it back sometime. It's, It's not pretty. It's chipped. But it's a very special rock to my wife and I because in 2015, we got the news halfway through our pregnancy with our first son that he was going to need three open-heart surgeries before kindergarten. And it was incredibly hard to get that news. So we had a host family in Philadelphia. He had his surgeries down at, at the Children's Hospital in Philly. This host family gave us a whole corner of their house rent-free for, for, a long time, for months. And right after he got done with his first open-heart surgery, which at, at, at the start was very successful, we came home and we found this big rock at the base of our door. And this family had two of the the cutest little girls, almost as cute as the bluer girls, okay? (laughs) And they had put three little rocks on top of this one big rock. And Joy and I have kept that rock, and we continue to have it. I I keep it uh, at the house there. And you know, after that, we didn't know that Landon was actually going to flatline on us twice, and I could be here for hours talking about all that we've walked through with him. The good news is Landon is now six years old. He is living with half a heart. And he actually just got to play soccer for the first time in Cortland. And it was, yeah, it's awesome. It's awesome. But we weren't, we didn't know what the future held. 
And we still don't know what the future holds. I mean, Landon is going to live his entire life with essentially half a heart. And the kids who have survived this are now my age. I'm 33, so they're now in their low 30s. And um, they don't really know. Medical professionals don't really know much about what happens beyond 30 because of the advances in medical technology. We're honestly just grateful that he's able to, to make it to where he is now. And you know, there are times, very few and far between now, thank God, because by God's grace and mercy, he is doing well, but there are times where I get hit with, am I going to outlive my son? It's scary. So I don't want this morning to to be a, about a, a religious professional that's sitting on a stage and saying, hey, you know, let's get with it. No, we all struggle with fear. We all struggle with suffering and pain, and we wrestle, and God knows. He knows what it's like because he didn't stay away from us. He came toward us, and that's what Christmas is all about, that we have this rock, this fortress this firm foundation that we can stand on, that even though we don't know what the future holds, we know who holds the future. And I believe that Jesus is the hope for the world. He was the hope for Anna. He is the hope for Lorraine. He's the hope for my friend Jimmer, who I just met. We just interviewed at Grace Christian last week. He owns both of the Chick-fil-A's up in Syracuse. He's wrestling with Lou Gehrig's disease. Just got diagnosed. And he looked me in the eye. And even in our interview, you can, you can go online and watch it. He looked at me and he said, Dan, I've never been more spiritually healthy in my entire life. <laughs> now, it doesn't mean that every day isn't a struggle. It doesn't mean that he's got to fight for hope and joy like, like hardly any of us do because this is a, a horrible diagnosis. But he has found his rock. He has found his fortress. He has found hope like Lorraine has and Anna did and I have. And the question for you that I have this morning, have you found Jesus? And are you engaging this process of maturity, of becoming more like Jesus, and not letting suffering have the final say? Because when we live for Jesus, and we recognize he is who he says he is, it's unbelievable what God can do, come what may. Let me pray for us. God, Thank you for your word. Thank you for this story of Anna. Thank you for what you are doing in our hearts and lives, even in the middle of all of this craziness that continues to swirl around us. God, I pray for anyone who's watching online or here that they, if they don't know you yet, I pray that they would bow the knee, that they would put their faith and trust in what you have accomplished for them. And God, for, for those of us who have I pray that we would engage this process of maturity and that we would see that suffering truly does not have to have the final say in our lives because you are a good God. Even when we can't see it, even when we can't feel it, you are who you say you are and we are who you say we are. We are yours, we are loved, and we are kept in your powerful hands. And I pray that we would believe that and live that out this week in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all so much.